This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Way, Brady PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramount Plus. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti, and I'm sitting here with a wine glass uh, full of, not alcohol, <laughs> full of a mocktail situation. I'm drinking this stuff called Sweet Reason Evening Blend. It's like a CBD-infused, sparkling like tea drink sort of thing. So freaking good. I post about this on Instagram. You guys know I love it. So I'm drinking this instead of my usual wine or dirty martini situation that's typical for me because I'm taking a little break with alcohol or a break from alcohol, I suppose, because Thanksgiving week and just like last weekend, I was just really, uh, you know, putting my mouth to the bottle in the literal sense. I was drinking a lot of wine. I've like gotten a newfound affinity for wine over quarantine. I mean, I've always loved wine, but I've never really had a full appreciation of it until I suppose like maybe, I guess maybe like last year. Even when I went abroad to Italy and went on all these like wine tours and things, I was never like fully obsessed with it. But now I'm like, very into it. I'm turning into a snob. So I need to take a little break, take a little step back from alcohol. So I'm drinking this like mocktail situation, but it's in a wine glass. So it kind of, you know, feels like it's still classy and all. So I'm just sitting here sipping my beautiful non-alcoholic beverage, which is ironic considering today's episode of Thick and Thin is all about alcohol. We're talking about prohibition in America today, which is really interesting. I actually a few days ago was on Reddit and I saw a post that was kind of declaring like it's been 87 years since the end of prohibition in America, like 87 years as of December 5th, because prohibition was ended on December 5th, 1933. And as we know, December 5th was just last week. So pretty recent. It's been 87 years, which I guess isn't like a pretty like number. It's not like 100 years or something. But still, nonetheless, a little over 87 years ago, it was illegal to purchase alcohol in America, which seems kind of crazy if you think about it. And to put a definition to it, it was a time where the manufacturer sale and transportation of intoxicating liquors was against the law for everyone, not just the people that were underage, etc. for everyone. 
And when I saw this post on Reddit, I immediately started drawing some mental parallels between 1920s America and 2020s America. You guys know on an earlier episode of the podcast, like back when, you know, back when COVID times were just kind of getting started back in like, I think maybe early summer or maybe like April, I think I posted an episode about the flu pandemic of 1918 and how history really does tend to repeat itself. And in a similar way, I think the prohibition period of 1920 and current times here in 2020 where you know gatherings aren't allowed in many places and bars are mostly shut down, clubs are shut down, things like that, it kind of, you know, you can kind of draw some parallels. And by saying that, I don't want people to think I'm glamorizing COVID times or that I am saying they're all, you know, the same in terms of the lives lost and the magnitude of it and the just all of the things involved. I don't want people to think that I am saying that everyone should just go and underground party and things because that's not what I'm saying. I just, you know, naturally the history buff in me was like, oh, you know, it's kind of interesting how you know, things are kind of the same as they were in 1920 in the sense that alcohol has always been a really cultural thing that people have a hard time letting go of. And in current times, people have a hard time letting go of alcohol-fueled events and parties and they want to continue going out. They want to continue going to bars and clubs and, you know, meeting and gathering and all these alcohol-fueled activities. And that's exactly how it was in 1920, you know, when alcohol was banned it just made people want to do it more. And so it's interesting, the psychology behind it, and when you take something away from people, how they really go up in arms about it and find creative ways to get around the rules. So I want to talk about that today. Again, not to inspire anyone really to do illegal things, but just to kind of unpack them and talk about the history of prohibition in the United States, because it's really interesting. Like I really enjoyed reading up about it and I learned so many things. So many things were born from 1920s America from prohibition, like a lot of terminology, a lot of just practices. So we're going to get into that and go back in time as we do. But I first want to talk a little bit about just the overall situation in America where our social lives have kind of been put on hold. It's for a greater cause, obviously, of saving lives and trying to make sure that the cases are down, slow the spread, all the things. And it's just interesting because a year ago, like imagine yourself or I'm imagining myself in December of 2019 and I was likely, I mean, of course, today is like Monday, so not today, but on a weekend, any given weekend of last year, I, you know, was waiting outside of bars for like 20 minutes at a time only to get in and have to wait another like 30 minutes to get a drink and having a million people everywhere like breathing all over me and it being like a tin of sardines inside every New York City bar and you know even before that in college going to bars and just that culture and it's just so interesting and I'm definitely not the only one who's seen like old videos and movies of gatherings and like people at bars and getting kind of like heebie-jeebie goosebumps because like, whoa, how is that kosher? Like, how is that allowed? Even, you know, when we didn't have this really crazy virus happening that was so, um, you know, inexplicable and we just had normal, well, we still do have normal illnesses like the flu and strep throat and things. But back then, like being that close to other people, having them breathe on you, like, no wonder we got sick. I think I've always at this point in the year have already gotten like really sick, knock on wood, because wow, I'm just jinxing myself. But I feel like wearing the masks and you know staying out of public has really just made me a healthier human being. But 
you know, alas, we go out, we have fun, we do these things because we are human and we need to unwind. And so it's just crazy though, thinking a year ago, all the things that I did and like I would subject myself to, you know, being just clustered in bars. And it's just so crazy to think like if you had told me last year when I was like in the middle of this bar, like, hey, this time next year, this isn't going to be happening anywhere. Or if it is, it's illegal or only in certain states in the middle of nowhere or, you know, and I would think you're crazy if you told me that this time last year, that it would be obsolete. And I'm assuming the people of 1920, that time period when, you know, prohibition had just gotten started, if you had told them the same sort of thing, like, oh yeah, so alcohol is going to be completely obsolete or like mostly, or it's going to be really hard to get your hands on it slash it's illegal to make it and sell it. Like people probably would have laughed at you then too, because alcohol and consuming it and socializing is such a cultural thing. It's so cultural and it's so just kind of essential to our survival in many situations. I mean, I don't know about you, but I love my alcohol courage sometimes. Not trying to promote excessive drinking or anything, but I mean, hey, it's nice to just have a little little extra something in your veins to get you through some difficult situations or uh, just to have some fun after a long work week. It's also become something that's very community building and going out to bars and drinking on a Friday night is just a really great way to, I don't know, meet people and especially in New York City and like big cities and urban places, it's just kind of like a very essential, well, even in non-urban places, it's very essential to life for many people. And so that's why I just think it's absurd, like just so crazy that the United States government thought they could take away alcohol from people without, you know, them going down without a fight. Like they are going to go down with a fight because they're not giving up their alcohol that easily. But I was thinking about all this, thinking about, you know, this time last year and then also 1920s America. And my friend Colby actually sent us in our group chat, like very timely. My friends always know when I need something to inspire me. She sent a video in our group chat, just kind of a compilation she made when she was bored um, in between like work stuff she was doing. She put together a compilation of a bunch of our nights out. Like I guess she saved some Snapchat memories or something and put together like a little string of events like us out at bars, you know us singing horribly in the back of cabs and like just really cute fond memories of our times out often alcohol induced not saying everyone needs to drink to have fun of course but uh my friends and I do (laughs) we don't have to but we do and um so yeah it was just really cute seeing that and I got really nostalgic just thinking back to all the really fun like silly nights I've had with my friends and all the horrible hangovers (laughs) so yeah and I just don't feel like it's gonna be soon that we're going to be back to that which is just crazy I feel like it's going to be at least another maybe after next summer I don't know it's really hard to say especially with the vaccine and all the mystery involved but I was looking at that montage just kind of watching it over and over again and I was just thinking about how important to our to many people's well-being and just like sanity it is to just you know even maybe not drinking but just go out with your friends and like be with your friends and be with your people and gather because human beings are wired to crave attention and Um, crave connection with people and so naturally when you take away gatherings you know it causes something it causes kind of this this loneliness for us we feel this kind of detachment and I bet a lot of people are going to have just you know psychological effects of this whole thing Um, luckily I'm here with my family at home and I still feel like I'm connected to them, but, you know, people that live alone that haven't seen other people or everyone, you know, is kind of having this moment where they're like going into a store and they're like, 
everyone's just kind of fearful of being near other people because you never know. So you're just kind of keeping your distance. Like that has got to have like psychological effects, which honestly I can do a whole episode on that. But alas, we were talking about prohibition today, but I was thinking about all that wrapped into one and it really got me thinking about you know, why people are breaking the rules and why people are still going to huge gatherings and why, you know, I even feel the temptation and I have fought and not fought the temptation and have learned the hard way what is right and what is wrong because it's just, it's really difficult. So in the grain of all of this, I was on Instagram recently and I came across this article that The Cut had posted called New York Nightlife Never Stopped, It Just Moved Underground. And it's written by Brock Kolyar for The Cut. And came across this article, I was reading the comments on the post and it was, you know, people slamming The Cut because they are glamorizing underground parties and things like that. And I didn't even like really think about how it is kind of glamorizing it. Even today, as I was sitting down to record this, I was thinking about how maybe this podcast episode could glamorize it. So I want you guys to know, like I'm going to say it again, like in bold print, I am not trying to glamorize gatherings. I'm just covering the history of our country well, for United States people. So anyway, this article was kind of summarizing the underground party scene in New York, kind of touching on LA and other places as well. And it was really interesting. I mean, I got to say I did kind of skim it because it was really long-winded and a lot of it was just like, nitty-gritty details I didn't really need to know, so I just kind of skimmed, but I found a few little sections that I wanted to read because it kind of sums it up. So it said, partying in New York never really stopped. Even in April, as the virus swept through the city at a ferocious pace, stories circulated about secret events organized through Instagram DMs and held in private lofts, shuttered clubs, and emptied warehouses. And then the author went on to describe some elaborate underground party. And then he says, If you happen to wander into this party, lured from the street by the muffled sound of electronic dance music bumping off the walls of the 2,000 square foot space, you might have thought it was 2019 again, when the bottom halves of our faces were left unadorned by swaths of fabric and sharing something you smoke, something you drink, or someone you sleep with didn't put your life in danger. And so I thought that was really, really interesting as well because, yeah, 2019 did look like that. And now 2020, it's all very different. It really is. And when I was back in New York over the summer, um, when I you know, was moving out of my apartment and I was saying bye to all my friends, my friend Bianca and I got to-go drinks from this one place and it was legal um, having these to-go drinks if they gave you like a snack. They had to like give you food or something for it to be legal, but we could take away these drinks. And while we were there, I saw like people kind of like sneaking in the back of the bar And I was like, wait a second, there is definitely like an underground situation happening here, like I bet. And that got me thinking about just like bars in general, like I know there's got to be an underground scene. Lo and behold, this article that I read and it's definitely happening, maybe not like bar sponsored necessarily, but people are getting creative. I mean, maybe bars are doing it. I don't know. I saw something suspicious, but who knows? I could have just like created it in my head, but it looked like just random people or not random, but people with a secret entrance understanding we're sneaking in and it was really just thought-provoking and it really got me thinking about speakeasies of the 20s and just how similar things have gotten and it's really just crazy to me I say this over and over again just how history can repeat itself how it can recreate itself and how humans you know despite what year it is despite the technologies we have kind of act the same no matter what year it is in terms of how they resist change and how they decide what they want to do no matter what the law is half the time and they just do it they do what's popular and so armed with all of this knowledge I launched into a deep dive of prohibition and I found out some really interesting stuff so let's just get on into it today's episode is brought to you by Angie 
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's take things back in time. Let's hop in our time machine as we do. We're going to go back to when the Prohibition era in the U.S. began officially on January 19th, 1920. So when it was signed, sealed, delivered in the Constitution, many people already knew it wasn't going to go over well. It wasn't a very far off assumption saying that things probably wouldn't go as planned due to many previous statewide attempts of outlawing the use of alcohol. They all went terribly in the past. A lot of states individually tried to limit or ban alcohol and it just never went well. For example, when a Massachusetts town banned the sale of alcohol in 1844, according to a PBS article, a crafty tavern owner took matters into his own hands. He began charging patrons for the price of seeing a striped pig, and that was essentially code for alcohol. Drinks came free with the price of admission for seeing this so-called striped pig. Another example, a deadly 1855 riot in Portland, when they tried to do it, led to the law's immediate repeal. Like People were up in arms, literally killing each other. So it was 1917 when they tried to go about it again. And, you know, after all these earlier attempts, maybe like, you know, time had passed, obviously, but people still did not have much faith that this would last, this would stick, and that people would take it seriously. And we'll figure out the truth in a few moments. But it was December 1917 when the 18th Amendment was passed by Congress, and the amendment officially, quote, prohibited the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors for beverage purposes. So it was passed by Congress, and then it was sent on to the states to be ratified. And it took some time, but in January of 1919, the 18th Amendment got the necessary two-thirds majority with the states, 
And from there, prohibition became the law of the land, as we know, although it would prove to be quite the shit show, to be honest. So let's talk about why prohibition. Like, why did people decide that they wanted to go to such lengths to prevent people from drinking? So according to this article I found written by PBS, which I'll have in the show notes, by 1830, the average American over 15 years old consumed nearly seven gallons of pure alcohol a year which is about three times as much as we drink today. This just gives me a hangover, like thinking about it. Just even thinking about the the concept of drinking that much pure alcohol, like that's just insane. You know, now that we're drinking like, I don't know, watered down vodka sodas and like wine. And so this was during a time where people were fighting to abolish slavery and really try to get our nation back to a place that was pure and without sin. And, you know, there's all these people trying to rally for rights and, and things like that, but also people that were just trying to look at things through a clear mind and see that alcohol was causing a lot of problems. It was causing marital problems. It was causing abuse. It was causing so many things. And so people thought, okay, we'll just get rid of alcohol. It's not an end-all be-all. It's not something that people need to survive. So we'll get rid of it. People thought of alcohol and the addiction and the abuse that many people suffered alongside it to be one of the biggest sins of our nation. And so the temperance movement was derived largely from America's Protestant churches. And at first they urged moderation, then they encouraged drinkers to help each other to resist temptation, which is kind of reminiscent of an early AA meeting dynamic or something. And then when that didn't take care of things, uh, because they weren't really probably going about it the right way, they ultimately demanded that alcohol be made illegal on a national level. They really rallied for it, and World War I actually also helped turn many people in favor of prohibition because people argued that the barley used in beer production could be made into bread to feed American soldiers. So making alcohol from the barley was kind of a slap in the face to soldiers, and a lot of their posters and you know imagery that they used to kind of further the, the prohibition movement was of soldiers kind of, you know, getting angry at the public for using barley that could be made into food for them. And that was kind of their angle. And it was also thought that prohibition would maybe help the economy, that people would turn to other things for entertainment, like movie theaters, restaurants, department stores for shopping, etc. But uh, lo and behold, none of this actually happened. The economy actually tanked for many reasons, and people instead just found ways to hide out and get creative with their alcohol consumption, as we'll see. And the closing of breweries, distilleries, and saloons actually eliminated thousands upon thousands of jobs, which was not good for the economy. I mean, think about all the barrel makers, the truckers, the waiters involved in the alcohol industry at the time, all gone in the blink of an eye. Something really interesting that I didn't know about all this that I found out about was, you know, while the 18th Amendment prohibited the manufacture, sale, and transportation of intoxicating beverages, It did not outlaw the possession or the consumption of alcohol in the U.S. So let me say that again. It it didn't prohibit the consumption, like the drinking of it, the having it in your home, but it did prohibit the manufacture, sale, and transportation. So think about this. If you are, you know, this actually happened before when, you know, of course, during a quarantine, the initial time, like in April, May, 
there was like a panic for people to run to the liquor store to get alcohol and like it was kind of similar to the the toilet paper frenzy but you know before we found out that many liquor stores in many states were essential businesses my dad freaked out and was like I'm gonna go buy like 15 bottles of wine because they're gonna close the liquor store and like it was kind of a panic moment so if you imagine like 1920s this being kind of the similar thing happening People freaked out. People panicked. They're like, we're going to stock up our houses with alcohol because you can have it if you get it on a certain day, like before the thing passed and like, you know, people stopped selling it and all that. So I want to read a little excerpt that I found from this book called Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition, which is a 2010 book on prohibition written by Daniel Okrent. I found a lot of information from him on this subject. He definitely is an expert on prohibition. But in his book, he said, quote, The streets of San Francisco were jammed, a frenzy of cars, trucks, wagons, and every other imaginable form of conveyance crisscrossed the town and battled its steepest hills. Porches, staircase landings, and sidewalks were piled high with boxes and crates delivered on the last possible day before transporting their contents would become illegal. The next morning, the Chronicle reported that people whose beer, liquor, and wine had not arrived by midnight were left to stand in their doorways with haggard faces and glittering eyes. Just two weeks earlier, on the last New Year's Eve before Prohibition, frantic celebrations had convulsed the city's hotels and private clubs, its neighborhood taverns and wharfside saloons. It was a spasm of desperate joy fueled, said the Chronicle, by the great quantities of, quote, bottled sunshine liberated from cellars, club lockers, bank vaults, safety deposit boxes, and other hiding places. Now, on January 16th, the sunshine was surrendering to darkness. So people stocked up, but even that wasn't enough to last the decade that prohibition would span. So people naturally got creative. Pharmacists began abusing their power. They were allowed, of course, to you know write up prescriptions. So they were writing up prescriptions for whiskey to help any number of ailments ranging from anxiety to influenza, and you know people known as bootleggers and you know the people that illegally made slash sold alcohol quickly discovered that running a pharmacy was the perfect disguise for their dirty business. And according to PBS, the number of registered pharmacists in New York State tripled during the Prohibition era. And funny enough, so Daniel, the uh, Prohibition historian that I just talked about, he says that the shady business actually helped this drugstore chain called Walgreens grow from about 20 locations to more than 500 during the 1920s. So think about it, the next time you walk into a Walgreens that uh, this business was fueled by bootleggers and (laughs) illegal alcohol in the 20s. So interesting. So because Americans were also allowed to obtain wine for religious purposes, enrollment at churches and synagogues rose significantly during this time. Cities also saw a large increase in the number of, quote, self-professed rabbis who could get their hands on wine for their congregations. Also, members of the American grape industry began selling kits of juice concentrate with warnings like, not to leave sitting out too long or they could ferment and turn into wine. (laughs) So like, whoops, sorry, just left my grapes out for too long and it turned into wine. I guess I'm going to drink it now because I don't want it to go to waste. So yeah, essentially people were making their own wine. So making wine from home was still technically illegal, but if it just kind of happened, you know, who could prevent that? It wasn't my fault. It was the grapes. 
But Americans found they can actually purchase these kits at many hardware stores, and instructions for how to distill the wine, how to go about making it in your home, could actually be found in public libraries in pamphlets issued by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So talk about irony. The government, you know, had these public resources for free, and people were using them. So interesting. So it turns out, guys, the law that was meant to stop Americans from drinking was instead turning many of them into experts on how to make it. But this caused a lot of consequences. You know, people began drinking tainted alcohol by mistake. It was either due to just user error and making alcohol incorrectly, or of course, you know, bootleggers and having kind of toxic alcohol and people died. A lot of people died. So according to that article by PBS, on average, a thousand Americans died every year during the prohibition from the effects of drinking tainted liquor. So on the topic of the black market and bootleggers and illegal liquor trade, this made criminals out of millions of Americans who weren't criminals otherwise. You know, they were breaking the law because they just needed to get their alcohol, you know. And courtrooms and jails overflowed full of these people. And the legal system failed to keep up with the growing number of bootleggers and even just the average household making DIY alcohol. They couldn't keep up with it. So it was January 17, 1920, at 12.01 a.m. when the amendment officially went into effect and then all of this craziness kind of ensued. And when that happened, you know, those who rallied for prohibition in hopes that it would wipe the American slate clean and reinforce purity in its lands rejoiced. They were like, yes, we made it. Like, people are going to be better now. Americans are going to be better. No one's going to be an alcoholic. And, you know, we're going to push for progress and all of those things. But just a few minutes past midnight, though, six masked bandits in Chicago armed with pistols emptied two whole freight cars full of whiskey from a rail yard, and then another gang stole four large barrels of grain alcohol from a government-bonded warehouse. These are just two documented attempts at what probably was happening all over the place of people, you know, last minute trying to steal as much alcohol as they could. People were definitely not loving it. They were willing to break the law to get what they wanted. When I was first thinking about researching prohibition, I knew that I had to look into speakeasies because this was a huge way that people were still gathering, still drinking together and having that community element that so many humans crave, you know, because it's just a part of our wiring. And so people were gathering at these places called speakeasies, which we still have today in many major cities. There's like cute kind of old school vintage speakeasies, a lot of them in New York that I love, just like underground places. So to kind of put a definition to it, if you're not aware of what a speakeasy technically is, it's an underground private bar room situation disguised as maybe another establishment. It's often in the basement or behind doors disguised as like wall panels, like secret entrances and other things. And you often need a password to enter like a secret word or maybe flash a membership card of sorts. I never knew about the membership card part of it, and I actually found this out from one of the sources I was reading from, and I looked at these old photos of the cards, and it's so funny, they look like, I mean, one of them said the tree club, and there's like other really nondescript, like very um, kind of not alarming at all things, like symbols and numbers on the cards, you would never know. Like if someone found it on the ground, no one would know what it was for. So it was all very under the table, really interesting. Um, And so prohibition went on to shape the way that Americans socialized, and we still feel so many of the effects today. Speakeasies were also referred to as blind pigs, 
clip joints and gin joints. Those were some other terminologies uh, related to speakeasies, and they were most popular in super urban areas. And so thinking about the time period too, this was a time where, you know, women typically drank with other women and men drank with other men and they didn't really, you know, mesh as much unless they were married and it was a very, just a different cultural time in terms of what was right and what was wrong. But now in the time of speakeasies and when alcohol was fully illegal, there was no longer this kind of social thing where men and women weren't really drinking together. So they were no longer barred from this and they thrived together in speakeasies, you know, mingling, hooking up, all the things, and also at elaborate house parties, which never really took place before at such a huge magnitude. And it was really, you know, we can think about it in like Great Gatsby and a lot of books and movies based on the 20s. Like we've definitely seen how this kind of unfolded and looked. And there was a legendary gangster at the time, Al Capone, as many of you guys know. Um, he made an estimated $60 million a year in Chicago, supplying illegal beer and hard liquor to thousands of speakeasies that he controlled in the 20s. And I found this out from the Mob Museum. I believe it's in Chicago or somewhere. They had a full like deep dive of this on their website. Something else that kind of came to be in this time, um, the term dating was actually apparently first introduced in Prohibition times. Like I said, things had changed and it was never easier for young single men and women to meet up without the supervision of their parents, kind of helicopter parenting. And it was in these dark underground clubs with like bootlegged alcohol that a lot of people started, you know, meeting up and going on dates as they called them and, you know, dating, which was just kind of new. Although the concept wasn't new, obviously, just the term apparently came to be in this time. But I don't really have a lot of uh, a lot of details on that. The Mob Museum said this, so we can't really know for sure. But it does kind of make sense. So yes, the Roaring Twenties were in full swing. Of course, though, there were many speakeasy raids, but many owners of these places paid off police officers to give them a heads up before the raids happened so they could clear out their places. And it was within the walls of these speakeasies and in people's private parties that bathtub gin was introduced. It's a uh, kind of a phrase. There was actually a bar in New York called bathtub gin, which is really fun. It's kind of a speakeasy sort of thing, so definitely go when it's open again, if you can, it's so fun. Um, but basically bathtub gin is a phrase that refers to really any sort of amateurly made homemade alcohol. So gin, because apparently gin was actually the predominant drink in the 20s, mixed with things like water, berry juice, uh, citrus, other things, and definitely not the same gin and tonics that I'm used to, but this is actually also when mixed drinks were kind of born. And it was because people would mix their bootlegged alcohol, which kind of tasted a little funky with ginger ale, sugar, lemon, other things, even Coke, Coca-Cola, to mask the taste of this like interesting amateur distilled alcohol. So they made mixed drinks to make it taste better. But going back to the bathtub gin situation, so, I mean, you can kind of assume that people were, of course, when they're DIYing alcohol, they need various receptacles to put it in. It was kind of rumored that people used bathtubs back in the day to make their alcohol. But looking now into the logistics, apparently there's just really no way that people did that because distilling takes a certain sort of device that would not work in a bathtub, but I think it was just kind of a saying. People, you know, of course, were like, we're making gin in the bathtub or something. So bathtub gin was kind of born from that, I guess. So according to an article written by the Mob Museum, at the height of prohibition in the late 1920s, there were 32,000 speakeasies in just New York alone. 
at one notable speakeasy, which was the 21 Club on 21 West 52nd in New York, the owners had the architect of the space build a custom camouflaged door, which was a secret wine cellar behind a false wall. Like I said, there was you know usually panels or something that were fake. And the owners had this button installed that was to be used if they ever got raided. And with just a push of this button, all of the liquor bottles in the place would drop down a chute and crash and drain into the cellar. So they were completely destroying the evidence. Like you just push the button, all the alcohol is down the drain, like in the cellar. Another notable speakeasy was created by social activist Lee Chumley. This was in New York, and he opened his speakeasy called Chumley's in 1922. And it soon became popular with notable writers like Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, John Steinbeck, and E.E. E. Cummings. And it was at Chumley's, apparently, where the restaurant term 86 was invented. So as we know, if, if anyone's been in the restaurant industry, 86 means a couple of things. It means either that an item is no longer on the menu or it means to nix or get rid of something. So like 86 of the tomatoes, etc. And supposedly shouting 86 at Chumley's, the speakeasy, alerted people that the police were on their way and they should exit out the 86 Bedford Street door. And apparently Chumley's was still open for a really long time. I think they only closed like pretty recently, which is really interesting. There's definitely a lot of speakeasies still up and running in New York, a lot of which though were kind of conceived later on, just kind of as an homage to the old speakeasies. So definitely not the same sort of deal, but I just can't imagine the adrenaline you get, like going to a place like this and having it be illegal. Like it's just so interesting to wrap your head around the fact that alcohol for so long in this time period, it was like over a decade was not legal. (laughs) It's really interesting. There are many reasons for the ultimate repeal of the 18th Amendment. The lack of control that law enforcement had over people who had never stopped drinking was definitely alarming. That definitely contributed. And also the overall just economic impacts and how horrible the economy was without the alcohol industry. Many, many reasons. But ultimately, the Great Depression really, really fueled a repeal. It was Franklin D. Roosevelt who publicly called for a repeal of the 18th Amendment during his 1932 presidential campaign. As one can assume, after all of those years of hiding alcohol and speakeasies and all the stress that it caused, he won the election in a landslide victory. And prohibition was officially over a year later when a majority of states ratified the 21st Amendment, which repealed the 18th. And Section 2 of the 21st Amendment, uh, which was passed when the 18th was repealed, allowed states to write their own laws governing alcohol. So that's why some states allow alcohol in different ways than others. And I never really understood that because going to college in North Carolina, there are so many different rules than here in Maryland and in New York and in LA. And just so I always wondered about, you know, how states can decide one thing in one place and one thing in another place. And so I just found out it's because of the 21st Amendment. And so after Franklin Roosevelt shut down prohibition, repealed the amendment, and everything was back to normal, in New Orleans, the decision to repeal was honored with 20 minutes of celebratory cannon fire, (laughs) which like you can just imagine people at this point are probably like dancing in the streets, like drinking champagne, like so happy that they can finally drink legally again and get their hands on it without, you know, potentially dying because of tainted stuff on the black 
market and all of that. Like people are probably thrilled about this. And it's rumored that Roosevelt himself celebrated the occasion by downing a dirty martini, which I can totally get behind. As you guys know, I love my dirty martinis. They're my favorite drink of all time. So I would definitely be devastated to not have a legit dirty martini for like 12 years. It's just craziness. So national prohibition officially ended on December 5th, 1933, just a few days and 87 years ago from when I'm recording this. So like pretty recent if you really think about it. And 87 years later, liquor stores are considered essential businesses in most states. You can still get alcohol from many places now, even though things are largely closed. Like alcohol is still a readily accessible thing in many, many places. Not everywhere, but in a lot of places. And I found out actually in this article for history.com so many like little truths about prohibition that I just did not know. And one of which was that even after the repeal of prohibition, some states continued to maintain a total ban on alcohol because like we said in the 21st amendment, you could kind of decide as a state what you wanted to do and you could make your own laws governing alcohol. So a lot of states were like, perfect, we're still gonna have no alcohol. We're still gonna ban it. So Kansas and Oklahoma apparently remained dry until 1948 and 1959 respectively and Mississippi remained alcohol free until 1966 a full 33 years after the passage of the 21st amendment which just sounds crazy and to this day 10 states still have counties where alcohol sales are prohibited altogether which is really really interesting I want to know where where this is like I didn't actually look into that part but that would be really interesting also, I found from that same article that some states never even actually enforced prohibition to begin with because the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act, which uh, was passed to enforce the amendment, basically said that states had to enforce it for their people. It was national law, but states were the ones that had to enforce it. And not all states really did. My home state, and where I'm sitting at this very moment as I'm recording, Maryland, never even enacted an enforcement code. Like, never even set up a set of, like, rules and what they were going to do. Like, they just never did it. Eventually, we actually earned, as a state, a reputation as one of the most stubbornly anti-prohibition states in the union. And this does not surprise me in the slightest, just knowing the history of my state and, like, all the things that we stood for. And that's just crazy. And so a lot of states like mine just like never even adopted it fully, I guess. I, I think most did though, because otherwise it wouldn't have been such a big deal. But yeah, how interesting. 87 years ago. That's not even that long ago. And here we are 87 years later in the midst of a global pandemic where it is putting our partying rights on hold and we are having to sacrifice our social lives and things of that nature and it's just interesting looking back in time and seeing how difficult it was for people back then. And granted, things are not fully the same because we can still drink and honestly drinking, not to say it's the healthiest form of coping, but it is how a lot of people are getting through this time, at least just making it a little bit easier, um, you know, because alcohol, not only does it, you know, numb you in a certain way it also just is fun i mean it's fun to have that as an activity and stuff so yeah alcohol has been a way that people have gotten through this easier i feel so not saying that of course prohibition and covid times are the same at all but it is just interesting you know what people will do to maintain their social lives and maintain their right to drink alcohol in various places and just because bars have shut down to some extent maybe not fully in all places but in a lot of urban areas they're kind of fully shut down and uh you know clubs being closed and things of that nature people still find a way especially in america to break the rules and it's just so interesting how 
history is repeating itself in some way, shape, or form. And people have had to get creative with the ways that they socialize, even if it's just over Zoom, like doing Zoom happy hours and things and, you know, getting crafty with just spending time with people from afar and like sitting on their front lawns like six feet apart from their neighbors and it's just so interesting how we've had to get crafty this year in ways that this time last year we never would have imagined for ourselves this time has definitely become a source of conflict for many people bar owners trying to come up with creative ways to stay open and you know other people finding ways to drink with their friends like I just said, either like across the lawn or on Zoom or breaking the rules. And it's just it's just really, really blurry and crazy right now because, I mean, it's been so long since our nation has gone through something similar, I guess. So yeah, 2020 and likely a large chunk of 2021 will always be a time period that we'll look back on. We'll tell our kids about this, but also we'll chat about this in the line, getting into a bar with our friends and be like, hey guys, remember that time where we couldn't do this? Like, remember that time? While we're waiting for like 30 minutes in the cold to get into a bar that for so long during the pandemic was closed. So it's really interesting. You guys know I draw my parallels, I do that. And so I thought it'd be interesting to talk about this today and kind of rehash prohibition of 1920 and what went into repealing it. I didn't really know the full extent of that and the full extent of speakeasies. It was really interesting to look into it. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Like I said in the top part of the episode, I am not trying to inspire you guys to underground drink or party. That's not what I was going about here. I just... You guys know how much I love exploring how history repeats itself, and this was just a prime example. But yeah, if you are one that drinks responsibly, cheers to this episode. I'm holding my alcohol-free glass of an evening blend from Sweet Reason. But yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And an FYI, actually, because I am holding this Sweet Reason and I forgot about this, I'm actually running a giveaway on my page with Sweet Reason. So if you go to my Instagram, instagram.com slash katiebelotti, you can find uh, my giveaway with Sweet Reason. It's for a three-month supply for you and your friend of Sweet Reason for three whole months. So check it out. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And I'll talk to you guys all next week. Bye. worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement lifelock alerts you to identity threats you might miss and if your identity is stolen your dedicated u.s-based restoration specialist will work to fix it let lifelock help protect what you've worked so hard for save 25 percent off your first year on lifelock ultimate plus at lifelock.com aware terms apply